I see some guests this morning from out of town. I think some are here for a wedding. Some are just traveling through. Great to see you all. Hope you're blessed by your time here with us in Calgary today. I'm sorry the weather couldn't be better. We've had a very uh, rainy, wet spring and summer. Actually, the spring was a little bit dry, but the summer's been really wet. And so when you come here in August and you find everything absolutely green and beautiful and gorgeous, just like it is, know that that's the way it is every day of the year here. And so please come back and join us because it's, uh, it's a beautiful place to live. Speaking of that, we, um, I've been gone for the last week. My family was here, had uh, our son Ryan and his wife Jessica and little Nora. And some of you who were out at family camp got to see Nora. You'll remember that we prayed for Nora because she was a smallish baby. She is no longer smallish. She looks like the little Michelin girl. And it's, it's wonderful to see her growing and doing as well as she is. Thank you very much for praying for her. There's probably some of you who are still praying for her, and we appreciate that very much. It was wonderful to have them here. We've been trying for years to try and get Ryan and Jessica especially. My son Adam and his wife are in a different kind of position in life, but we've been trying to get Ryan and Jessica to think seriously about moving to Canada. And I, there was actually a comment on Facebook that I saw from Jessica where she, was, she put up a picture and she said, we're thinking of making this our permanent home. Now, it happened to be a beautiful cabin out in the mountains. And so I don't know exactly if she was just thinking about the cabin or if she has Canada on her mind. I know you were praying intensely for Nora. I want you to pray just as intensely for Ryan and Jessica to make that kind of decision. That would be a wonderful one. We had a, a great opportunity to show them uh, our part of the world again. And they've, they've seen it before, but it was just solidified in their minds, I think, again, how beautiful it is, this place that we live in. So... Uh, I'm hoping that that will happen. Who knows? Maybe they'll make that decision. Michael, great to see you back. Michael's been gone for uh, the better part of a couple of months training uh, as, with a new position with Jazz, with uh, Air Canada Airline. And we're just grateful that uh, he's here and back. And I'm sure, I asked Trina, I said, are you grateful to have him back? And she said, oh yeah, I really am. And then she paused and she said, ask me again in a couple of weeks. And then, she, and then I, I said to her, you know, I used to go on these 10-day ten, hunting trips when I lived in B.C. And uh, I'd get back and I'd, you know, Robin would always say, it's great to have you back, but I sure slept well while you were gone. So maybe you have the same experience. <clears throat> A junior high friend of mine, Bob Kahoot, was riding a bicycle too fast down a hill toward an underpass when he lost control and went headfirst into the concrete pillar of the underpass. I was 14 at the time. I'd known him since we were very young. I'd actually dated his sister for a while. A few days later, I remember seeing his sisters in the hallway outside the locker room after football practice, and I asked them to please say hi to Bob for me because he was still in the hospital. And they said that they couldn't do that. And me being 14, I asked why. To which they in unison said, and I remember the sound of their voices coming down this hollow, echoing hall, uh, hallway. They both in unison said together, because he's dead. And I don't remember anything I said after that. I do remember going, my, fa- my father picked me up immediately after football practice. I remember getting into dad's truck and saying to dad, Michelle Kehu just told me that her brother was dead. Mark Hams, with whom I had gone to school since grade school, 
was sitting on the trunk of Jeff Mason's car in the high school parking lot on a Friday afternoon waiting for the bus to take the football team to a game that night. Jeff playfully gunned his engine and took off for just a few meters, but Mark slipped off the car trunk, hitting his head on the pavement when he fell. The whole incident took four or five seconds, but there was literally blood running into the storm drain moments later from the back of Mark's head. Mark instantly went from being a high school student, university-bound, to being someone who needed to learn to walk and talk because of damage done to his brain. It was just kids being kids, but it was a plain, playfully tragic choice. And then many of you are going to remember that about midnight on February 6th of this year, Jordan and Evan Caldwell and six other friends broke into Canada Olympic Park. They went down the bobsled track on their own toboggan. Jordan and Evan, two twin brothers ready to graduate from high school, died almost immediately at the scene when they hit the gate that was down the track that they never foresaw. The other six were injured. It was a horribly tragic event, a very stupid decision on the part of some foolish teenagers. My sense is that these were basically good kids. But sometimes good people do very foolish things. And so Heath Ledger died in 2008 at age 28 at the peak of his career in what the medical examiner's office in New York determined to be, quote, acute intoxication by the combined effects of oxycodone, hydrocodone, uh, diazepam, timazepam, alprazolam, and doxalamine, or however you say all those drugs. He had mixed a cocktail, and it killed him. And what was most interesting was that just in the last couple of weeks, in an interview with the Daily Mail in Australia, Keith, um, Heath Ledger's dad, Kim Ledger, placed the responsibility for the fatal overdose squarely on his son's shoulders, saying it was totally his fault. And this, this sounds harsh coming from the father. But he said it was totally his fault. It was no one else's. He reached for the drugs. He put them in his system. You can't blame anyone else in that situation. And all of that happened because sometimes people do stupid things when they should know better. Well, these stories connect with the story we're looking at today, because in many ways it's even worse, the story that we're going to read today. Certainly just as stupid, intentionally, David made really bad choices. And he made them as the king of Israel. And he was said to be a man after God's own heart. But he still made stupid decisions. I'm not going to read the whole story today. Some of this is not G-rated. And we have children in the audience today. But most of you know the story already. In it, there is lying. There is selfishness. There is adultery. And there is murder. All by someone of whom it is said that he was seeking in his life after God's own heart. I want you to turn to Second Samuel chapter 11 if you would. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
Maybe somebody who's looking at a pew Bible could tell me the page number. I forgot to look that up. If you just shout that out so everybody will know, that'd be great. 221, thank you. I'm not going to read all of this, but I'll read some of it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, and it's interesting that David is not off to war. I don't know what the decisions were that caused David to not go off to war. Idle minds are the devil's workshop. So maybe he should have been off to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. It's a calculated act. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and and by the way, the text doesn't say anything about her putting up a fight. I just think that's interesting. Maybe she did, but the text doesn't say anything about that. And you wonder, sometimes it does indeed take two. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. Eventually, she went back home. And then the woman conceived and sends a message to the king. And then you know what the king does after that. He brings Uriah the Hittite home. He tries to put him in a position where Uriah will be apparently responsible for the pregnancy. It doesn't work. Uriah is a bit too noble for that. He eventually, David does, puts Uriah in a position where he will be killed. And the fact is, the plan works. And when he is killed, after David has broken at least four of the Ten Commandments, then he takes Bathsheba into his own home and she becomes his wife. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David when he came to him. He said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He had bought. He raised it and grew up with him, grew up with him and his children. He shared its food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to that rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come into him. Instead... He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives and your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And David knew he was guilty. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've made the enemies, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And then as the story goes on, that is indeed what happens. When the child dies, David, almost immediately, begins to live a new kind of life. Well, these events are notable. But certainly in this day and age, I think you would agree with me that when we hear sordid details on a regular basis, they are not shocking. And I'm not sure they were all that shocking then, even if adultery and murder were both listed among the Ten Commandments. And that's because we know, we're experienced about the fact that even the best of us have the ability to make the stupidest of mistakes. We make stupid mistakes. I make stupid mistakes. Don't you? Is there any of us this morning who can't say, at least to ourselves, I make stupid choices. I make stupid mistakes. I think it's something we can all say. So if the story of David's relationship with Bathsheba was not shocking, even then, and if the depth of sinfulness of human beings is known to us all, if our stupidity should in fact just be assumed by us, and therefore, if that's not the point of the story being told, and I don't think that's the point of the story, I don't think the point of the writer is to say, man, was David ever stupid. Man, are human beings ever sinful. I don't think that was his point. In fact, I think we get that. So what's the point? And I'd say that there are at least two. And I think they're both found in chapter 12, verse 13. And here's the first. The first is the reality of David's recognition of his own sinfulness. Notice that he doesn't say that he sinned against Uriah. Oh, I've sinned against Uriah. Although he has. Notice he doesn't say, I've sinned against Bathsheba. I lured her. But he has. Notice he doesn't say, I sinned against the armies of Israel. He doesn't say, I sinned against the military personnel. He doesn't say, I sinned against the nation. David's recognition is that he has sinned against his God, whom he loves and who loves him. And so in verse 13, the text says that then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is one of the great differences between where we're typically at in our present age and the age in which David lived. The great standard for what we regard as sinful seems to be couched somewhere else. David did not evaluate his life against a social media poll. But a lot of times, that's what people do. Certainly celebrities do that. He was not guided by what was trending on Twitter. David was not first concerned about what all the other kings were doing and what their standards were. 
When it came to the moral issues of his time, his first and last conviction concerned the will of God for his life, and that was all. Was he human? Absolutely, and he knew it. Did he make mistakes? Absolutely, and he knew it. Did he fall? Absolutely, and he knew it. Did he commit adultery? He did. Did he commit murder? He did. Absolutely. David's story is, in that sense, one of the most tragic stories in the Bible. Because you have this one who loves God so much, a man after God's own heart, and yet can't prevent himself from sinning. He falls. And so it's tragic. But in the end, David evaluated his behavior and concluded that he was wrong. No spin. No handlers telling him what to say. No political advisors telling him, this is is where you should go with this and this is where you shouldn't go with this. Instead, David simply says, I have sinned before the Lord. And that's all he cared about. You know, parents especially, and I want the young parents especially to listen to this this morning. You know, I'm not a perfect man and I'm not a perfect father, not a perfect parent, but there is something that I've learned. And I think this may be your most difficult task today as a parent of young children. And that is to help your children somehow to understand that they must not make moral decisions based on what they hear on social media or what is trending. Despite the flashes of morality that we can sometimes witness in the culture around us, the trending of social values compared with the standards of God is in free fall. It just is. And more and more as time goes on, what our, our churches, what, our, what we're doing, what we Christians are doing, is instead of evaluating our lives against the, the will of the one who loves us so much, is that we keep evaluating our lives against those other people who live out there. And we compare our trending to their trending as if they somehow have a reputable standard and all the while God is saying please just follow my word please just love me our society neither believes in God nor is concerned about what the Lord thinks they should do even last night I don't know if you noticed this maybe some of you are watching TV I I was watching what is it Is, is CBC channel 6 I'm watching Channel 6 last night, was watching the Olympics, and all of a sudden they cut away from the Olympics and they went to the tragically hip. And they acted as though the tragically hip sets the agenda for who Canadians are. Like, how do you know what a Canadian is? Well, you just watch the tragically hip, that'll tell you. They define our culture for us. Interesting concept. But that's kind of where we have gone. And what I hope is that those who come after me will still say, when they too are human, and when they too have made their own sinful mistakes, what I hope they say is that they're wrong. Because they have sinned against God. 
And so we look at what Jonathan has already done for us this morning with Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And he is justified. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And the debate this morning is not about original sin. The debate is, who are we? Who do we recognize we are? What is our position as people? And our position of, as people is that we are not what God wants us to be. And we have to simply admit this. And it is so important for us to recognize and admit our sinfulness. There is one who loves us most, and it's against him that we sin. Look, look at chapter 12, verses 7 through 10 again. I read these, but look at these again. Chapter 12, verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And his point is, David, I love you. I've given you everything. I long for you to be my man. I long for your heart. And it's so clear to me, David, that your heart longs after me. That's what he's saying in so many words. Why then have you deserted me? And we need to recognize that that's who we are. I want to say this in such a way that especially our young people here today hear what's true. And so teens, young adults, please listen for a moment. There is no one here who does not need to keep this constantly in front of his or her own eyes, starting with me. We must realize that it is not just laws we break when we sin. It is not just rules. It's not just your parents' rules. When we sin, we break relationship with the one who loves us the most. And it hurts him. God grieves when we sin against him. And so I want to say to you, please, please care more about what God thinks than what you hear from the world around you. The world does not love you. The world seeks its own way. The world will step on you if you're not careful. I promise God created you and loves you and he wants you to make choices that reflect his desires for humankind. If you still make mistakes, I promise you he's going to keep loving you. And God knows what is best for us all. But please use God's will for humankind as your standard for living, for life, And use nothing else. And when you make mistakes, and you will make them, return to Him, simply reflecting on His will for your life and turning to another, without turning to another set of values. So the first point is there is no one in this room who has not sinned against God. Not one. 
Not this one. Not that one. There isn't one. Here's the second great point. If I can get this to work. You going to move me on there, Trent, please? Thanks. You can see it on the screen stated as clearly as I can possibly say it. Your sins are taken away. Look again at chapter 12, verse 13. David says, against you I have sinned, Lord. And as quickly as the words come off the page, the text says, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Your sins are taken away. And it's in this forgiveness of the Lord, I think, that the greatness of this story is found. We think that the shock comes when Nathan comes to David and he says, You are the man. And we're all like, Ooh. But we saw that coming. The writer had already written the first part of the story. We saw that coming. We knew that was going to happen in one sense. And so we're not shocked by that. What does shock us? What shocks us is that after everything that David has done, the lying, the murder, the adultery, the coveting of another man's wife, after all of that, God then says, I forgive you. And he says it instantly. It's instantaneous, instantaneous forgiveness extended to David by God. The very moment that David recognizes that he has sinned against God, God extends his forgiveness. And so we can turn to Psalm 51 again. Trent, oh, I got it. Thanks. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Can you imagine David saying this after what he's done? I will be whiter than snow. And then it doesn't just stop with forgiveness. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And here's what's so important this morning. When I was talking earlier about David and his sin and about how we are so guilty, which we are, If you don't get this, then the morning is a failure. Then the word of God has not done what it's supposed to do today. Because the word of God is not supposed to leave you wallowing in your sins, thinking about how horrible you are. And there are some of you who are really horrible. And I'm but we accept from the Lord his forgiveness. And we don't just accept forgiveness, but joy and gladness become ours. Rejoicing becomes ours. A pure heart created 
anew by God becomes ours. A steadfast spirit becomes ours. God's presence in our lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit becomes ours. The joy of our salvation becomes ours. And we are sustained by God. And it's only because when we say, I have sinned before you, God, he comes back just as quickly and says, and I forgive you. And we need to be as willing to accept his forgiveness as we are to recognize our own sin. This is amazing. You read these words from David and you think, did he not write verses 3 through 5? Did he somehow forget what he had done? How can he so quickly turn this around? But it's because he's a man after God's own heart. And God's heart says, I forgive you. And that's what we need to hear. And so there is no paralyzed state into which David enters after his forgiveness. He doesn't for a moment, sit idle. He doesn't dwell on his sinfulness. In the story here, he gets up, washes his face, put on some new clothes, and he gets back to work. Because he has that kind of relationship with God. You know, if you're like me, genuine joy, genuine joy after your recognition of your sinfulness before the Lord, does not come easily. But this is where God wants us to go. His forgiveness is real. It is deep. It is profound. It is effective. It's instantaneous upon our recognition of our sinfulness. And here's the reason why this is so important for us to get this morning. And I want you to please listen to me. If you haven't, I hope you've listened to the whole thing. But if you haven't listened to anything else, listen to this. There are people here today who need to recognize that they have sinned against the Lord. And that the person sitting next to them has also. I know you're all thinking, I wonder what they did. But neither does, or I should say, but your sin does not prevent you from receiving from the Lord His grace. You are not unique in your sin or your sinfulness. Instead, you are like David. And you will sin again. But you need to realize that just as quickly as you do, he forgives you. And so wallowing in your own guilt, thinking you aren't good enough, will get you nowhere that the Lord wants you to go. You sin, that's, exfa- that's a fact. Accept that and then accept his forgiveness. Please. I don't want to dwell too long and catch somebody's eye. As if you'll think I know what you did. But please. Accept his forgiveness. He wants you to. One time there was a woman caught in adultery. She was caught in the act. 
Jesus says, I don't hold this against you. Go and sin no more. So that's the lesson we learn from David. It's not that he teaches us all that we sin. We know that. What he teaches us is what needs to be in our hearts and our minds when we're all too human. He shows us that we need to allow our relationships with God to convince us first about what sin is. And then when we've sinned, to turn to the one who loves us most, putting ourselves again in his loving, forgiving hands, living in light of his relationship and his character. We have this because he stands beside us and he will not take this away. And I promise you this morning, this is something else, of course, that Jesus said. I promise you this morning that if you do this, if you accept that kind of forgiveness from him and live according to the will of the one who loves you the most, that you will have life and you will have it to the full. Let's pray. Holy Father, I I want this morning for every sinner here to have full and abundant life in you, to have it to the full. But that can't happen, God. We can't be like David if we don't recognize that we are sinners before you. Use your will as our standard. And then accept, oh God, your instantaneous forgiveness for blessing us the way you do through your love. I pray every person here this morning would know the truth of this, that they would receive it into their lives and declare you Lord and Savior. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.